0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Our Father, we are grateful, at least we ought to be profoundly grateful, that we can gather together as your people, in spirit and in truth, to worship you in spirit and in truth because of your great goodness and mercy towards us. If we are gathered in truth, we are gathered as your people. And we are gathered as your people because of your great condescending goodness to us and not just to us, but to the world that you love and ultimately to the whole creation and we are thankful, Father, that we are sharers already in this renewal that you have begun in Christ our Lord. And I pray, as always, that you would help us to be faithful stewards of this life that is in him. Stewards not just as those who hold on to something that is precious to us, but stewards as those who live out in all things, in all ways, the truth of the fact that we are raised up in Christ Jesus, seated in the heavenly realms in him, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And not just as individuals, but that that together our share in this resurrection is unto the end that your church would be the fullness of our God who fills all in all. Your church is a most precious thing. And Father, however precious it might be to us, we can never begin to approach the preciousness that it holds for you. What a glorious thing that the God of all eternity has been pleased to reveal and glorify himself by inhabiting our humanity and forming a people for his own possession. Not just a people who know him or relate to him in some sort of remote way, but a people who together form the dwelling of the living God, a people who together embody as sharers in Christ the truth of our God, embody the gospel that we proclaim, embody the new creation that will one day take everything into its grasp. Father, whatever our gifts, whatever our calling, may we see the importance, the goodness, the richness, the infinite privilege of being a part of this thing called your church. And may we be faithful stewards of that trust. Help us to hear. Help us to grow. Help us to be rightly convicted. And by your spirit to be further transformed by the renewing of our minds. Whatever our distractions, whatever our distress, whatever things we have brought with us today that weigh us down, I pray that you would free us from the burden of those things and capture our hearts and minds, that we would be as hinds feet on high places, brought again to a fresh consideration, a glorious exaltation in our God and his triumph in Christ our Lord. It's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Well, we're drawing near to the end of our consideration of the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, but this morning I want us to simply consider verse 17 of chapter 13. Again, as Colin mentioned, this has to do with leadership in the church and even the way in which we uh, understand leadership, the way in which we uh, understand and, and live out this relationship between the saints and those that God has appointed to lead them. The writer has already referred to uh, this, th- uh, these individuals as leaders in the church And he specifically called his readers to consider them and specifically the outcome of their faith, the fruitfulness of their faith. And in that way, imitate their faith and their faithfulness to look to those who have led them and those who are leading them and to draw, in a sense, inspiration or encouragement from them and be imitators of their faith and their faithfulness. But here he exhorts them to uh, uh, perhaps a more well-defined or a more narrow consideration, specifically the relationship that exists between these readers and those who are leading them. And by extension, the relationship that exists between Christ's saints and the leaders in his church. And as I've thought about this this week, and and I do truly believe this is the case, this isn't just uh, pulpit flourish, I do believe that the way in which the relationship between a congregation and its leaders, or more broadly, leaders and saints within Christ's church, that is one of the best indicators of how people understand this thing called the church. Whether they understand the church essentially as, as a, uh, uh, something under the old creation, an institution, an organization, a religious entity, a social group of some sort. However, they understand the church in terms of a natural way of thinking as opposed to understanding it as the scriptures would present it to us as this organism that is the fullness of the Messiah himself. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Not an organization, but a spiritual organism. You hear me say it all the time. We read it. We see it all the time. Jesus said that it's when the church is one. As he and the father are one. Then it bears authentic testimony to the truth. Then the world will understand his coming and the meaning of his coming. When we are one. As the Father and the Son are one. A oneness not born of anything under the Son, but a oneness born of a shared life in the Spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father. Members of one another because of our joint participation in the life of God in the Spirit. Members of one another Not sociologically, not politically, not economically, not culturally, not linguistically per se. But sharers in one another because together we share in the Messiah himself. And that principle is so critical to understanding this dynamic of leadership and congregation. And how so often we go astray, how so often I think we miss it. Uh, distort in one way or another, and so as I say, I think that the way that we see the relationship play out between leaders in a church and the congregation of a church is a key indicator, probably the greatest indicator of how that group of people understands this thing called Christ Church and what it is to be Christ Church. Well, let me read this with you, uh, verse 17 again. Very simple and. Typical of, of a very simple, straightforward verse, it's easy to read it and, and in a sense digest it in an instant and move on. And this isn't unique to the epistle to the Hebrews, but certainly it is true of the epistle to the Hebrews that in the, the simplest, most condensed uh, sayings or statements, there is a wealth of truth. And this is one of those cases where what the writer is getting at, I think, is profound and must not be must not be missed. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and and the writer uh, says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Essentially, this exhortation, and this is another exhortation, uh, but it consists of two parallel exhortations. Obey, submit. Two exhortations and then two points of explanation or elaboration, if you will. The first one pertains to the men themselves, these leaders the, the point of clarification, what about them? The second one pertains to the purpose, the ultimate end in this thing of obedience and submission. So I'd like to treat it in that way, the exhortation itself in the two components, and then the significance in terms of what, what really the writer is getting at by way of these clarifications or elaborations. Well, his twofold exhortation, both of these are, if you will, imperatives. These are things that he directs them to do. Uh, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And based on the NAS and some other versions, it might seem to be kind of a redundant thing. That's kind of saying the same thing twice, isn't it? Obey, submit, aren't those basically the same thing? But actually, these two imperatives fit together in a complementary way. The first one really speaks to an internal, the internal or inward aspect of this obligation and the second to the outward or the expressed aspect of it. The inward aspect and then the outward aspect. This verb, the first verb that he has here, again, the NAS says, obey your leaders. That verb that's rendered obey actually has the sense of be persuaded. Puts it in an entirely different light. Be persuaded. It's the idea of becoming convinced, applying themselves to be convinced. And in generic terms, persuasion is about being convinced of something the truth of something, the significance of something, and so ordering oneself accordingly. You see it used that that way in this epistle. uh, If you look just at verse 18, pray for us for we are convinced that we have a good conscience. Same verb. We are convinced, we are persuaded that we have a good conscience. If you look back in chapter 6, where he's warning them about these who, in a sense, embrace the truth of God, they've tasted of the Spirit, tasted of the powers of the age to come, and then they fall away, and how there's no way for them to be restored. But he says of them, We are convinced of better things concerning you, we are persuaded. It even carries the idea of trust. If you look back in chapter 2, this is from the Septuagint rendering of this passage, um, which is a citation from the Old Testament. But he says in verse 13, chapter 2, and again, I will put my trust in him. Same verb. I will entrust myself to him. So the basic sense here is that of persuasion or a convincing with the ultimate outcome of that and entrusting oneself to the truth of that thing that one is convinced of. A persuasion that yields itself in a confident trust. So the point initially then is that the writer isn't calling for some kind of blind or blanket obedience. These are your leaders, do what they say. They're in charge, do what you're told. Obedience has kind of a nasty connotation in our culture, you know, particularly in our generation. Uh, who are you to tell me? I don't have to do what my parents say. I don't have to do what my teacher says. I, don't, I can do what I want. Who are you to tell me? And we hear this word obey or obedience, and that's our, 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 the hair begins to stand up on the back of our neck. Certainly, we're not going to let some clown in a church tell us what to do. If he tries and I don't like it, I'll just go to the next church down the road. There's a thousand churches that I can go to. If they're going to tell me what to do, I'm out of here. They're not going to tell me. But this isn't that. He's not calling for some kind of blind or blanket uh, obedience because this guy's in charge. He has the title elder or whatever it happens to be. What he's exhorting them to is the kind of sure confidence and trust that result from a sound and a thorough inquiry and consideration. Being, if you are convinced of something implied in that is that you've done some thinking, right? If you've become convinced of something, you've done some sort of inquiry or you've given some consideration to it. Or else you're really not convinced, you're just saying whatever he says or whatever they say. Whatever, you know, the news says or whatever this or whatever that. If you really truly are convinced, if you're persuaded, it's because you have investigated it yourself. You have undergone this process of inquiry and consideration. It's an informed and discerning confidence and trust. That's what he's calling for. So right away, you can see that the obligation, the onus, if you will, is put on those who are under the leadership. it'd be far easier just to say, whoever's the elder in your church, do what they say. He doesn't say that. He's requiring something of the congregation. He's requiring something of these Hebrews that they are responsible for. That's this idea of obedience. And he says, then secondly, submit to them. And the point is that it's this informed, discerning, convinced confidence and trust that underlie this thing called submission, yielding. The writer is calling for the sort of willing yieldedness that results from a persuaded mind and conscience, from trust. A yieldedness that is born of trust. This is really how best to understand what he's saying here. Be persuaded concerning those who lead you. And in that way, for that reason, yield to their leadership. So just a couple summary things about that before we move on. First, again, this persuasion is a matter of inward conviction. As I said, the first piece is the inward component. The second piece is the outward component. Persuasion or being convinced is an inward conviction of confidence and trust that result from knowing a person well and observing his life and leadership. That's how the writer already previously said, consider those who lead you and recognizing or observing, being aware of the fruitfulness of their faith, imitate them. See, he's, he's implying that there is a due diligence done here. There's an inquiry. There's an examination. There's a consideration. There's an intimacy of knowledge and awareness, and those then who possess such confidence in a trust and trust in a leader will willingly within the right boundaries and the right definition will willingly yield himself or herself to that leadership not because of tradition, you do what the elders tell you, not because of compulsion, not because of guilt, not because of some kind of imposed obligation. You do what you're told or you're going to be excommunicated out of the church. I've known a lot of people through the years who've been very soured on the whole idea of eldership because they've experienced heavy-handed dictatorial Elders who want to micromanage their lives. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you haven't. But it's not uncommon. People who seek power will gravitate towards positions of power as they view it. And that's just just as true in the church. It's why churches have to be so careful about their leadership. This isn't a submission of compulsion or a foot on your neck or you're going to be excommunicated if you don't do what we tell you to do. This is the willing yieldedness that's born of trust, that's born of confidence. And so the obedience if we want to define it that way, that the writer is calling for is nothing more than loving and trusting deference. Loving and trusting deference to a fellow Christian who is recognized as gifted, called, and equipped to shepherd God's people. A fellow Christian. And the connotation behind me saying that is we naturally think hierarchically. And so this dynamic then is bilateral. It's not unilateral. It's not, I'm in charge, you do what I say. If you want to call the shots, become an elder, then you can tell people what to do. It's it's not that, it's bilateral. This what the writer is calling for expresses mutual deference, mutual submission. Think about the reading again from 1 Peter 5. Peter talks about elders and how they're to lead and how they're to think about their work. And what does he says? What does he say? Submit to one another. Be humble respecting one another. Leaders are obligated to secure the confidence of those they lead. They are obligated to strive to do that. And they do that by demonstrating themselves to be servant shepherds who strive for the well-being of those under their care. That leads us to the first explanatory phrase that he has here. Where he says, these individuals that I'm asking you to submit to, keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And this keeping watch over your souls, the idea of soul means really the whole person. The totality of the person, the totality of his life, his concerns, his issues. It's a watchfulness concerning the whole person. Not just watching over your soul because he wants your soul to, you know, go off to heaven when you die or whatever. It's your you. And implied in that is obviously knowledge, concern, awareness. They keep watch over your souls. And this idea of watchfulness is actually sleeplessness. The imagery that he's drawing on is the sentry who's on guard duty. And his vigilance and his discipline and his care, his concern allows the others to rest or sleep, go about their business. In other words, to feel secure. They feel secure because they trust this century. If you put it even in a military sense, if you don't trust the guy who's standing watch, you're not going to be sleeping, right? You're not going to be resting. You're not going to be settled. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be worried. You're going to be looking anxiously about you. That's the idea here. And this helps to clarify, again, this idea of persuasion, confidence and trust. He's calling these readers to entrust themselves to their leaders, knowing that they're watching over them, if you will, that they have their back. So that's what he calls them to. And then the last piece of this is, again, putting it into perspective. What's the thought process that's behind it? Obviously, everybody would agree, I think most everybody in the church would agree, that God has ordained that there be leaders in the church. There's discussion about deacons, elders, teaching elders, ruling elders, all that kind of thing. But I think everybody would agree that God has ordained that there would be leaders in the church. But in accordance with the principle of where I started, which is this idea of mutual indwelling in the spirit... And as Paul says, the body causing the growth of the body. Yes, leaders, but according to the overarching principle that defines the church, which is the mutual indwelling in the spirit of the saints and the dynamic of the spirit working such that the body causes the growth of the body. That moves us away from the idea of a pecking order or superiority of gifts, or whatever it happens to be. Everyone is in it together. And leadership gifts are just one kind of gift. So leaders, but according to the definition of the church itself, and the way in which God orders and, and, and blesses and, and nourishes the dynamic of the life of the church, it conforms to that. So proper submission to leaders must be grounded in a good conscience, if you will, or confidence, a good conscience, but that persuasion also has to match itself with a good attitude. Again, the NES puts it this way, which isn't the best rendering, but I mean, it captures the idea. It's not the most literal rendering. He says, obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, then pause. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, which seems like another directive or a third imperative, and it's really not. It's this be persuaded and submit to them, knowing what sort of men they are. Submit to them because this is how they they order themselves in relation to you. And this submission to them is in order that their work might be with joy and not with grief. That's what he's saying. Relate to your leaders in this way, in order that their work would be joyful, delightful, and not... Grievous, not agonizing. So it's not just a matter of outward submission, but, but a heart attitude and orientation behind that. It's not enough just to be outwardly compliant. The inner attitude has to match the outer, outward demeanor for submission to be genuine It's just like, you know, in in parenting, not that this is a parenting, but in that dynamic, you can see kids who will do what they're told, but they're gnashing their teeth. Right? They're resentful. You're bigger than they are. You're going to take away their phone or whatever it happens to be. In the end, you're going to prevail one way or the other. So they're going to do what they're told, but they're going to hate every minute of it. That's not what the writer is calling for. See, he's saying not only do you need to make a right assessment of your leaders, but you need to be loving them. Just as they are loving you as shepherds, your submission needs to itself be an act of love. And he says that all of this works together, again, not just because God has a hierarchy and some people, you know, you've got to have the org chart and somebody calling the shots and the, and the cooks and the, you know, the, the workers or whatever, the worker bees. And it's not that. It's that through this dynamic of the gifting and the operation of the gifting in the church as faith operating through love, that the church grows, that it builds itself up. He says to them to not relate to your leaders in this way with this kind of a heart isn't to your benefit. See, why do people, people chafe and grind and push back? Now, I'm assuming again that leaders are doing what they should be doing. But when people resist that and push back, it's because they think they have a better way or that it'll be more profitable over, this way or that way they see it as a matter of advantage or profit to, to not submit, or I submit outwardly because I have to, but in my heart I'm knowing there's a better way. I'm, who's this guy? Who's he to tell me what to do? He says that kind of attitude isn't profitable to you. It's not profitable to the body. Because the dynamic here is not whose hand's on the top of the bat but it's how does the body cause the growth of the body. And when it's not ordered properly in hearts as well as conduct, it works against itself. It destroys itself. It undermines itself. The relationship God intends, not just between leaders and people, though that's what he's talking about here, but amongst and within the body of Christ, that relationship is to be one of mutual devotion and care. And that relationship that the church, you know, again, an organism, a community bound together in the spirit. And things like uh, resentment independence, autonomy, discontent, divisiveness, self-will, any kind of self-seeking works against that. It hinders the body being what God would have it to be. It actually degrades it. And it can ultimately even destroy the well-being of a church. It's easy to see that with things like autonomy, selfishness. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And sadly, a lot of churches pander to that. You look at the marquee, you know, new air conditioning, comfortable seats, relevant messages. We're here for you. We've got a program for every person. You know, are, are you an, an Asian, non-binary, you know, whatever? We've got a program for you. We've got a group for you. It panders to people's sense of individuality and independence. I know what you've done for me. What have you done lately? What's in it for me? What are you going to do for me? What do I get from this? And all of those things, certainly any kind of autonomy, which reflects itself in all these different ways, that obviously undermines, works against the relationship that the writer is calling for. But so does... The personality parade. And we've all seen it. You can have will worship that undermines this relationship, but you can also have personality worship. Paul dealt with that. That's one of the first things he deals with in his first letter to the Corinthians. For all of their problems and their immaturity, he deals first with the fact of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And he says, What are you doing? Is Christ divided? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? All we are is servants through whom you came to believe, as each does his will. Each each works according to the task God has appointed to him. I planted, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. The first four chapters are all about that. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Cephas. And he says, this is a sign of your immaturity. I can't speak to you as mature people, but as immature. When you think in that way, when you operate in that way, you show that you're immature. You can't handle me. You're still in need of the very basics. No more discussion about men. No more discussion about men. Go and read the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And that's a very common thing. We've all known it. We've all seen it. Mega churches tend to be tend to grow around personalities. And when that person is traveling, the parking lot is half empty. Right. We've all seen it. The world loves stars. We want to follow stars. We want to follow winners. Right. We're impressed by that sort of thing. And that also is just as contrary. Factions rob leaders of their joy or should just as much as grumbling in an autonomous spirit. But his point is that rightful submission, which is an eagerness even in the heart, not just an outward compliance, but an eagerness in the heart, serves the joy of the leaders in their work. But it also serves the genuine benefit of the person who's in submission, which we don't tend to think that way. I'll submit because I have to. I'll submit because the Bible tells me I have to. I'll submit because it's what God wants me to do. But it's not my choice. I don't really don't want anyone telling me what to do. And certainly when the rubber meets the road, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. So I'm going to do what I want and then just make excuses and hope that, you know, it can all be brushed away. Right. We've all, we've all seen it. We know that's the case. But the writer is saying it's actually profitable to you. To live in this way, not just profitable to the leaders, profitable to you. Why? Because it reflects, again, God's harmony and goodness in the church, the way in which we are built up together into Christ, who is the head. The body causes the growth of the body. Leaders have to strive to secure the confidence and trust of those they serve. They serve They have to work for the edification and the joy of those under their care. But that same obligation applies to those, the believers who are under those leaders. It's a bilateral thing. Working for the joy and the benefit of the other is universal. It's not just what the leaders have to do. Both the body towards their leaders and towards one another, but here towards the leaders and the leaders towards them, both are just as crucial to the church's well being. And because of this mutual obligation, there is also mutual accountability. And I mention that because the writer specifically mentions the accountability of the leaders. They will give an account. And I don't know about you, but I've known people who have said, the pastor's the one who has to give an account. We're all off the hook. We can do what he says because he's the one that's going to have to stand before God and give an account. We're off the hook. As long as we do what he tells us, then we're, we're free. We won't have to give an account. But if this dynamic of the body is true, if the body causes the the growth of the body, and if each person is equally vital to that growth and that well-being, then each person will equally give his account. Leaders will give an account according to their gifts, according to their ministration, but everybody will give an account according to his gifts and his ministration. Paul said, We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. So, this isn't something, well, gee, the preacher said this, the preacher told me, the preacher's the one who's going to have to get. I'm off the hook. Nothing's required of me, nothing's expected of me. It's the preacher. That's why we pay him, it's his job. He does the Christian life for us. He does this thing of knowledge and understanding. He does this thing of truth. We just have to be followers who do what we're told to do, and and we're off the hook. And I know I'm being a little bit facetious, but a lot of people think this way, certainly in the way their lives work themselves out in the church. There's mutual accountability. Yes, believers must submit to their leaders, but as an aspect of their own faithfulness in growing in the knowledge of Christ in their conformity to the truth. You can't rightly submit to your leaders if you don't have the right grid and the right understanding. As I said, this isn't blind blanket obedience. This is a one over heart. This is confident, informed, discerning trust that requires us to grow, us to think, us to be matured. And a downside of that is that Christians who defer to illegitimate, unqualified, and unfaithful leaders are just as guilty before God as those leaders themselves. Well, he's got the seminary degree. Well, you know, he's, whatever, he's this, he's that, he's the other thing, I just have to do what I'm told. Or he must be right, He's the guy with the THD or, you know, he's the guy that's done this or done that. So he must be right. No, when we submit without a good conscience, we are really not submitting in the way that God intends. And when we defer to unqualified, unfaithful leaders, you're just as guilty as those leaders themselves. Because submission to leaders is submission to Christ himself. Paul repeatedly said, be imitators of me, because I'm the great apostle. No, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. As you see Christ in me, as I am leading you towards him, as I am helping you to know him, then be imitators of me. As you see him reflected in the things I say and who I am and, and how, how I bring this ministry to bear, then be imitators of me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, the obvious uh, you know, implication of that is that we have to know what Christ looks like if we're going to follow those who we see Christ in them, right? Right. So in conclusion, then let me just draw out a couple of things here quickly just to pull all this together. The first thing is that church leaders, and I'm not distinguishing between elders and deacons or classifications of elders in, you know, like Presbyterian theology or whatever, leaders in the church, and that's how the writer of Hebrews deals with it. And for what it's worth, I would argue that Deacons are just as much spiritual leaders in the church as elders are. Different orientations, slightly different function. But it's not what we've often been taught to think, which are the deacons are the ones who fix the toilets and, and mow the grounds and, and you know set up the classrooms and fix people's cars or whatever it happens to be. Not that those things should never be done but the deacons aren't just the worker bees with technical skills or business skills or finance skills or whatever. They're also spiritual leaders, mature, full of the spirit and wisdom. So church leaders are servant shepherds. They are not executives. They are not ministry professionals hired to run a religious organization. And very often now, churches seek pastors who are CEOs. That's really what they want. They're running multi-million dollar organizations with, you know, 100 employees or whatever. They're businesses. It's part of this whole evangelical industrial complex that we all are well aware of. Whether parachurch or whatever. Big business, big money, big operations. Church leaders are servant shepherds. They are under shepherds who serve the chief shepherd and his flock, and they are accountable to him. This is 1 Peter 5. That means that leaders must shepherd Jesus' people in his name according to his purposes and according to his goals. They don't have the right to establish their own leadership aims, their own leadership program, pursue their own agenda in the church. You know, there are churches that spend tens of thousands of dollars hiring consultants who come in and tell them how to restructure the business to grow it and get all these people in and and have this and have that. And it's all this thing of strategizing to to build the organization under shepherds leaders in the church are shepherds in Christ's name unto his goals unto his purposes they don't have the right to build their own fiefdom or their own enterprise even if it seems good even if it seems well isn't it great to get in a bunch of people isn't that really what we would want people coming to know Christ They also must not view their office as the means of personal gain. Repeatedly, you see this expression used, sordid gain. Paul uses it with respect to deacon candidates. He uses it with respect to elders. You have it used in Peter, Peter's account in 1 Peter 5. It really means the pursuit of personal benefit that is unwarranted that is not consistent with this calling. It can be financial. There are a lot of people who make a lot of money in Christianity, whether it's pastors or whatever happens to be. The richest people in Nigeria are pastors. If you look at the list of the people who are the wealthiest people in Nigeria, they're all pastors, It doesn't have to just be finances or money. It can be status. I'm the rabbi, kiss the ring, right? Power, influence. One of the dangers even in in Christian counseling is this codependency thing. Where I like to be needed. I want to have the person come in. Like a person with a flat tire every week. And I pump up their tire form. And then they go away. And then the tire's flat in a week. So every week they're coming in. You know, same thing. And I'm pumping up their tire form. And it's, isn't it great to be needed? And they're looking to me to live the Christian life for them. It's a It's an unhealthy thing. They want me to tell them what it looks like to live the Christian life. Go do this. You know, put the penny in the gumball machine, turn the thing here, this thing will come out. Here's what you need to do. Do this, do this, do that. And I feel important because this person can't survive without my counsel. And this person is looking to me to live the Christian life for them. This sordid gain can take all kinds of forms. It's really just this seeking of of a gain or an obtainment that is not consistent with what it is to have the body function in the way that God intends and the role of the leaders in that. The next thing is, and I've hinted at this, that leaders function according to the spirit's gifting. Paul calls leadership functions a gift of the spirit. Some have gifts of leadership. So it's not because I'm good with finances, it's not because I'm good at running an organization, it's not because I have a management background, it's not because I have a seminary degree, it's not because I have this or have that. Leaders, it's a gifting. And my point in that is that all of the Spirit's gifts work towards what? The Spirit's goal, which is building up all of the saints together into the whole stature of the fullness of Christ that's what it's about if you want to walk in the spirit if you want to keep in step with the spirit what is the spirit doing he's perfecting the life and likeness of Christ in human beings he takes what is Christ and he imparts it and perfects it in the lives of people he is the testifier of Christ So all of the gifts work in that way. That's why I said the tongue-in-cheek thing about I can't use my gift because you don't have a parking ministry or whatever. Parking has nothing to do with the ministration of Christ. All of the gifts function in whatever capacity, in whatever arena, towards this thing of the building up of the saints into the fullness of Christ. And we're going to see that. We'll close with Ephesians 4. Well, what that means is that church leadership If it's a gifting from the spirit, it's about people and their care and their nurture, not activity suited to running a business or running a religious organization. And if you think I'm overstating it, look at how many adjectives we put on pastor these days. Executive pastor, music pastor, technology pastor, right? Right? Facilities, pastor, it's all about the program, it's all about the mechanisms, it's all about the machine. And I'm not saying that those functions in some sense don't need to be taken care of. You obviously have to care for a facility if you have one, right? You obviously have to deal with issues of music or whatever, But now any job in the church practically gets the label pastor attached to it. Pastor of technology. This is our IT guy that runs our our sound and our lights and all of that, right? I mean, have we seen it? I've seen it. It's everywhere. Church leadership is about people. Good leaders, therefore leaders who are worthy of being followed, are distinguished by their intimacy with Christ and their intimacy with their brethren. They win the consciences and the confidence of those under their care because they lead them towards Christ and they manifest his mind and his love in their interactions with them. Is anybody perfect in this? No. But that's the orientation. Laboring to see people grow up in Christ. Are we going to have to handle finances along the way? Yes. Are we going to have to paint the building from time to time? Yes. But that's not what the Hebrews writer is really ultimately getting at. The leaders that he's calling them to follow are those who are leading them towards Christ. And towards the formation of his life in them. The next thing is that leaders, he says, are to be persistent as well as vigilant. They are sleepless. Persistent as well as vigilant. And this is a tough one. I think the average stay of men in ministry now is some pastors is somewhere around 10 years because they get so frustrated and so burned out. And they have also unjust or, you know, unwarranted expectations how wonderful it's going to be and how easy it's going to be and everything's going to fall into place and it doesn't work that way. But people get frustrated. They, they say, I'm done with this. It's too hard. It's too difficult. There's a persistence. There's a persistence. It's not a position that one fills temporarily. I mean, I, I've seen churches that rotate their elders every year. It's like serving on a committee, right? You sign up, I'll give you a year. And I'll show up for the meetings and I'll cast my vote. But one year, that's all I'm giving you. If this is a gifting of the Spirit and a calling of the Spirit, it doesn't have a time limit on it. And I'm not saying there's never a time when a leader in a church wouldn't, even by the Spirit's own leading, sense that it's time for me to step away. But this isn't signing up for a job for three months or six months or a year, whatever it happens to be. And just as it's not for a fixed time interval, it's not a limited commitment. Leadership is not a limited commitment. It's not, you know, I'll give you 20 hours a month or I'll show up for one meeting, but I can't do two. I got this, got that, got the other thing. This is an all-in thing. And obviously, you know, not everybody is vocational in terms of being paid. And, you know, there's that balancing of I've got a job and I've got a family. But this is not a limited commitment of time or of involvement. And then lastly, all of these things underscore the fact that church leadership is entirely a function of the ecclesia, of the church. And in our time where so much is oriented around parachurch and all these other kinds of things going on, God recognizes the church. And church leadership is a function of the ecclesia. It operates within, it exists within, and it operates within Christ's body, and it serves Christ's goals and purposes in the body. It doesn't serve institutional needs or organization needs or anything like that. And this is why you see in the early church that leaders were raised up from within. Even if you take Acts 6 as, you know, the thing of of identifying deacons, these men were told, find men among you who are wise, who are mature, and appoint them to this work. He didn't say, you know, put something out on the Internet, you know, pastoral search or whatever. Go find somebody to come and do this. He said, find men among you. The obvious thing is that you see them, you know them, you recognize their gifting, you recognize their calling. Those leaders were not imported or imposed on a group of believers from the outside, and even though Paul was involved in his travels on his journeys of, of helping them to, you know, uh, ordain leaders in the church, they were leaders in the church. He spent time with them. He knew those people. He helped them to choose their leaders. And that is very contra the modern paradigm, certainly in America, where we view church leadership in terms of the professional credentialed minister and this vast clergy laity divide. In Presbyterianism, the teaching elder doesn't even, he'd never stand in the, or the, the ruling elder would never stand in the pulpit. The pulpit belongs to the seminary trained ordained men. That's it. The way in which we do things, none of this really existed until you're getting up to the Middle Ages. So, you know, how did the early church do these things? The saints together, the gifts functioning. Yes, leadership gifts. Yes, proper leadership oversight. But this hierarchy and who's on top and who's second and who's reporting to who. None of that. None of that was a part of the way the church initially was. The credentialed minister, you know, the clergy, the laity who are underneath him, you know, the, the Middle Ages with the, uh, speaking in Latin, nobody knew what was going on. But these guys are in charge. They're waving the incense sensor and they're getting us into heaven. And sadly, there's a lot of that even in Protestantism as well. So to fulfill their role as God intends, leaders must be identified and affirmed by their observed practical godliness, their intimacy, their service, their devotion to a body of believers, not simply their academic credentials or resume. And I'm not saying academic credentials are of no value. I'm not saying a resume is of no value. but this is an observed practical godliness. You know, there are pastors who don't even know their congregation at all. They're the preaching pastor. They get up in the pulpit every week and they deliver their sermon. Denise and I were in a church years ago. I was teaching in that church. In four years in that church, I never spoke to the preaching pastor once. You had to make an appointment like three months out. He'd get up in the pulpit on Sunday, deliver his message, go away. That was it. He didn't know the people. That's abominable. How can there be persuasion? How can there be confidence? How can there be trust that yields submission where there isn't any real relationship there? It has to be that way because that's what the body is. All of this, again, unto God's goal in Christ. If you just bear with me while I read these few verses from Ephesians 4, Paul's talking about, again, how to preserve the unity of the body, the unity that's in the spirit. And he says, God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, then, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of men, craftiness and deceitful scheming. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ himself, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, that body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Therefore, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. A very simple statement by the writer but incredibly profound and it it lays a huge burden on those who would be leaders in the church but it also lays a huge burden on the people of the church as well. The body working together according to its proper function to build itself up in love. Father, I pray that these things would bear their fruit in our hearts and our minds. The principles have to be understood and have to be applied. And each congregation and each circumstance has its own demands. But the truth of the body and the way in which the gifts function, including leadership gifts, remains unchanged. And Father, I fear it's so easy for us to go astray. We love success, We love accolades. We love significance. The church in this land stumbles over itself to be relevant and to be significant and to be prominent and to be notable. And we have lost the simplicity of devotion to Christ and what it means to work together, faith working through love in a community of believers that share in the life, your life in Christ by the spirit to build one another up. And when we will do that, then people will see and people will know and people will come to faith. When the church is the church, then the gospel will bear its fruit. I pray that we would put first things first, that we would get our house in order, that we would be testifiers of truth, livers of truth. That Christ would be exalted in his church. That there would be no need for shame or reproach or, or rebuke that we would all be able to give a good account on that day. May we be faithful, each according to his faith, each according to his gifts, each according to his calling. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.